0: Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with seismologist and prediction skeptic, Dr. Lucy Jones. This podcast is made possible by small donations from individuals just like you. Would you consider sponsoring too? Because with your support, we can continue to provide this weekly insight and support for you getting through it. It's simple. Just go to patreon.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and thanks. Now let's get to it. Happy New Year. This is the first episode of the year 2021. A hallowed New Year's tradition is to predict what's coming in the year ahead. So it seemed like a good time to talk about prediction. This is the first of four episodes that we'll be focusing on the holy grail of seismology earthquake prediction. In this episode, we'll be looking at the history of prediction and why it's impossible. Lucy, this is your origin work, the research you started your career with that brought you to public attention.
1: Yeah, I entered seismology thinking that I would be predicting earthquakes. Before my time, you go to the beginning of the 20th century, seismologists had really come to think that earthquake prediction wasn't possible. There just didn't seem to be any patterns there. But in the 1970s, when I came, you know, started thinking about graduate school, it became a time of optimism about prediction. There were reports out of China. Remember, this is the cultural revolution. So it wasn't like people could easily talk with with people there. But it there were reports that it looked like they had predicted an earthquake, the Haichung earthquake. And you know there were some other reports out of Russia and everything seemed possible. I had majored in Chinese in college. So I had sort of a special opportunity to try to understand what had happened with that Chung earthquake. So when I went to graduate school, they had me start studying foreshocks because there'd been over 500 foreshocks to that earthquake. And, you know, it, it was really a heady time. It it seemed possible. Things were changing. New things were being learned. And, you know, the, the research had a point. I mean, I was going to save the world or at least the part of it that unfortunately lived with earthquakes, So in 1979, I had just passed my general's exams. There was an exchange with China opening up. And as a young graduate student, I got sent to China as the first American scientist since normalization of relations uh, with the specific goal of looking at what happened at the Haicheng earthquake so we could learn how to predict them ourselves. So on the way from MIT to China, I stopped in Los Angeles to visit my parents and came by Caltech where I got the chance to meet Charlie Richter, recently retired, and heard him uh, reiterate his very strong belief that earthquake prediction was the province solely of charlatans and fools.
0: So even with that warning from the great Charlie Richter, there was a moment there where you had a hypothesis that earthquakes could be predicted. So what did you end up finding when you went to China?
1: The reality was much grimmer. It's clear that the Chinese success was something of a fluke, essentially guessing that a swarm of earthquakes were foreshocks, and that they had earlier guessed that a different swarm were foreshocks, ordered people outside, nothing happened, they came back in, and they were still able to get them to go out the second time which shows some of the different political and social systems between China and the United States, and very clear that we could not use what they had done to predict earthquakes for us. And and actually later, when when more documents were released, we realized that the prediction had only been made at the county level. And when it was a success, the authorities
0: took credit for it. So why do you say no one has successfully predicted earthquakes. We hear a lot of people who conveniently claim that they have predicted an earthquake that has just or already happened.
1: Sort of like the Chinese result that we were just talking about. When it's a success, you claim credit. And I think it's really noticeable that many of the supposedly successful predictions uh, are only heard about after the earthquake has actually happened.
0: Okay, so... What happened when you got back? So this is, it was late 70s, uh, early 80s that you were in China. What happens when you get back to the U.S. with what you've learned?
1: Well, okay, so the earth, okay, the research in the United States was continuing, but we kept on hitting the wall that we always had. We would think we had seen something and then it wouldn't play out. You know, I really thought we would find something about foreshocks that could be used to predict earthquakes. About half of our big earthquakes are preceded by a smaller one. And I and others spent years studying these foreshocks, including the ones in Haichung, others here in California, in detail to help us find what we called a discriminating characteristic. What could tell us that something was a foreshock before something larger happened? And the answer turned out to be nothing. Foreshocks are just earthquakes that happen to have an aftershock bigger than themselves. And in this way, and in lots of others, we just kept on finding the patterns weren't there.
0: So why should all of us, like a seismologist, be suspicious of a prediction of an earthquake of where and when it will happen?
1: Because nobody's been able to prove that they could do it. I mean, and this is not because we haven't tried. We've looked a lot for something that is connected to the occurrence of our earthquakes. We've looked at gases in the earth, especially radon gas. We've looked at strains. We've looked at tides. Sometimes we'd look before an earthquake and see something interesting, but try to repeat it. Nothing ever held up. You know, for instance, one of the ones that got talked about a lot in 1989, before the Loma Prieta earthquake, there was a huge spike that was seen in a low frequency electromagnetic radiation. And it looked really interesting. And so we funded instruments to go out and try and find them, you know, before other earthquakes, but we never saw it again. And, you know, this is the scientific process playing out. You see something interesting, you test it, you see whether it's real. And unfortunately on earthquake prediction, nothing ever gave us a repeatable prediction.
0: And so if it can't be repeated, what does that mean? Is it not science? It's
1: science, but it turns out it's coincidence, you know, that things happen. There are lots of earthquakes and there's the other core problem around understanding earthquake predictions. Earthquakes happen all the time. You know, I can predict that it will rain in Kauai today. It rains every day there. Every day? Well, most every day. So there might be one or two each year where it doesn't happen and there's the chance that I'm wrong, but mostly it does. And so I can make a true statement. It will rain in Kauai today, but it's not a useful statement. You know, with earthquakes in California, we usually record about 50 to 100 per day. So I can predict that there will be an earthquake in Southern California today. Again, it's a true statement, but not a useful one because I didn't specify the
0: magnitude. What you're saying then is as our listeners are thinking about predictions that matter in the year ahead, they should know that a prediction of the exact time and location of an earthquake is not based on science. It can't be done.
1: That's right. And actually, the key issue is one thing you didn't say there, which is the magnitude of the earthquake. Look, I can make a prediction that SoCal will have an earthquake this year. And I'm 100% certain to be right. And that's because I didn't specify the magnitude. We have 50 to 100 earthquakes a day, but they're almost all small. And what people want in prediction is a prediction of the magnitude of an event. Now, I can say we'll probably have a magnitude 5 this year, And I will probably be right because most years have at least one magnitude five. But again, that is not new information. It's true, but not particularly useful. The one way you can make it seem to be useful is if you only give it to a few people at a time. You know, we had somebody back in 1993 who would send a fax, remember this is before widespread email, he sent a fax saying there will be a magnitude six in Los Angeles in the next week. And he sent it to a different company each week. So most of them saw this said, boy, this guy's crazy and threw it away. The company that got it the week that the Northridge earthquake hit was really impressed. And then this guy came back and tried to get them to give him money to do more predictions. And so there's your charlatan side of the equation, the ones who are actually trying to use you in this process. And then there's the other side, the people who don't understand the difference between causation and coincidence. And too often, the things we think are related are really just a matter of coincidence and not causation.
0: What we know is that predictions make us feel better because we'd rather know that a bad thing was going to happen than not know what to expect and live in that fear. Lucy, you've talked about that be- before here on this podcast. So when you, the listener, hears a prediction, fight the urge to believe it, to make yourself feel better. That's what I'm hearing you say here today. But we've just started on this topic. So you'll have to join us for our next episode where we'll dig deeper into prediction and help you get through it. Until then, I'm John Buerry with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.